Well, it's a pleasure to be back. Thanks for your flexibility last week. Um, I, uh, I'm very thankful that Gary was already scheduled to preach. Gary, are you, Gary, are you in here somewhere? Over here somewhere? He's out there. Who is here today? I don't know. I'm not going to draw on anyone. Dave's here. Thank you, Dave. Um, all right. Well, I, yeah, I'm so thankful that he was scheduled to preach, and thanks for your flexibility. It was a cold, praise God, um, but uh, I was not in a position to stand up in the midst of COVID last Sunday, and so what a blessing it was. That's the first cold I've had since COVID started, which uh, maybe these masks and not ever seeing any other human, maybe that's, maybe that's helpful. There's something to this. Anyways, well, good morning, and I want to tell you off the top that our service this morning, our sermon in particular, is not what you would typically expect on the Sunday before Christmas. Um, we are walking through Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, and we are highlighting the, what we've called them the curious footnotes, the women that Matthew has chosen to include in this genealogy. Because you remember, he doesn't need to include any women. The purpose of the genealogy is to prove that Jesus is a descendant from the line of David, which means he doesn't need to include women, and yet he does. So we've been working through and we've been asking the question, why did he include this curious footnote? And when I, when I opted to go this route, I recognized that there would come a Sunday when we would, we would come to this particular curious footnote, and it would be a, a bit of a somber Sunday. I don't know that I computed the fact that it would be the Sunday right before Christmas, uh, and yet here we are. Uh, but, but I will say, as jarring as it might feel, and as out of the ordinary as it might feel, this is very much a, a sermon that prepares us to appreciate Christmas. It's just sounding a note that maybe we're not used to sounding on this particular Sunday. Today we turn our attention to one of the most disappointing and disillusioning stories in all of the Bible. And I don't say that lightly, and I'm mindful of the fact that the Bible is full of stories of sin and murder and adultery. And yet there's something about this story that, that causes it to stand above almost all of the rest. And, and it's the person that's involved in this story. And it's the depth of betrayal that's involved in this story. So I'm going to read to you now from Matthew's genealogy and show you why we are where we are. Uh, you can just listen along. It's going to be up here on the screen. But here I'm going to begin in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Pause there. And again, I've told you every week, but I want to make sure you hear it today. The primary purpose for this genealogy at the start of Matthew's gospel is to prove that Jesus is a true descendant from the line of David. He is writing to a primarily Jewish audience. He's writing to a people who are eager for the Messiah King. In particular, he's writing to a people who are longing for another David. Okay, so tuck that away. That's going to be significant for what we're going to hear as we walk through the sermon. But let's jump back in. Verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So we'll stop there because here we find the fourth woman in this genealogy, the fourth curious footnote. And this edition is perhaps more curious than all of the rest. This fourth woman isn't even named. We've named her for you. It's Bathsheba. But that's interesting because Matthew knew who she was. 
Right? Any Jew knew who Uriah's wife was. He knew her name, and yet he intentionally did not name her. He intentionally referred to her as the wife of Uriah. Why did he do that? Well, any Jew reading this knew exactly what he was doing. And I want to make sure that we see what he's doing. We want to hear the story of the wife of Uriah, and we find that in 2 Samuel chapter 11. That's going to be our primary text this morning. So if you have your Bible, please turn with me now to 2 Samuel chapter 11 as we hear this story. You know, every, uh, every pastor that I've known, they wind up with these phrases, these sayings that capture truth succinctly and memorably. I don't think I have any of them yet. I, I look forward to the day when I might stumble onto something worth repeating. But um, Pastor Paul's got a ton. Uh, you, I mean, I could just say, throw one out. The devil's like a dog on a chain. You know, he's got lots of great ones. One of the ones that's stuck in my mind is this. He says, David is like an arrow that is shot. You've heard this one? David is like an arrow that is shot at the sun. He aims in the right trajectory, but he ultimately, tragically falls short. So if we're going to understand David in the Bible, we need to understand him in this sense. He was the greatest king. He, he, he exceeded all of the rest. He was shooting right at the sun. It was like we look at David and we see a glimpse of what we're longing for, and yet he ultimately, tragically, fell short. Well, 2 Samuel chapter 11 is where we find the, the tragic descent. This, this is where the, he, he ceases to move in the right trajectory, and he heads in the direction of absolute ruin and destruction. In our text this morning is a vivid illustration of the destructive power of sin. It reminds us that even our greatest heroes are not immune from the rebellion that courses through our veins. And so as we prepare to celebrate the incarnation, as we revel in the mystery of God with us, Matthew is stopping us here and he wants to make us sure that we see this, that we remember this. So we're going to work our way slowly through 2 Samuel 11 and we're going to ask the question, what does this story teach us about sin? So I hope you're there with me in your Bible now. 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 to 2. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living, active word to us today. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. So let's stop here and consider what we've read. The Israelite army is valiantly fighting the enemies. They're pushing them back. They've come to the springtime, which is the time when nations go to war. And they're pushing back the enemies. And now remember, David was the warrior king. That was his claim to fame. David was the one who had, who had slain Goliath. David was the one who had accumulated all of these accolades to the point that you could hear women singing in the streets in his early days. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Yet in our text this morning, we find the warrior king staying home from the battle, moseying around on his couch. And the first thing we learn here is that idle hands are the devil's workshop. Have you heard that saying? Is that still going around? It's true. The army left in the spring, but David decided he could sit this one out. 
you can almost envision him. I mean, like picture the scene in your mind. Don't picture the end of the scene in your mind, but picture the beginning of the scene in your mind. David is, he's lying on his couch. It's the afternoon. The text tells us, like, gives us the hour, which I think is intentional. And he gets up off the couch in the afternoon, and uh, he's just thinking, what am I going to do today? And he looks over, and he sees his harp, and he's thinking, I could practice my scales, but I did that yesterday. I could call for the book of the law to be brought to me, and I could, I could freshen up on some things. I could, maybe I could do some exercise, get myself ready for, for the next battle. Uh, whatever I do, I've got to get away from my couch. So David, you know, moseys on over, and he goes onto the rooftop, and he gets some fresh air and feels the afternoon sun on him, and, and it's there in that place that he looks, and he sees a woman bathing, and she's a beautiful woman. And then in that moment, bored David decides... I think I know what I'm going to do today. And the story turns. It's a dangerous place, boredom. The old adage is right. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. Our enemy seizes upon our boredom. And here, as David is neglecting his responsibilities, the enemy has set a trap for him. Our enemy's no fool. Do you know that? Can I just say that? That's not a little passing comment. Our enemy is no fool. He knows where we are weak. Matthew Henry says it well. When we're out of the way of our duty, we are in the way of temptation. You ever experienced this? I'm I'm speaking to a room full of human beings, so I'm going to assume that we have all experienced this. Temptation hits us hardest when we stay up later than the rest of our family. Temptation hits us hardest when we're in the house all alone. Temptation hits us hardest when we've just numbed our minds with two hours of television or two hours of video games or two hours of social media. Temptation hits us hardest when the boredom sets in. That's the truth. And we need to see that. It feels so, so mundane, so practical, and yet it is absolutely positively true. I can't tell you how many times young people will come to me and say, I'm just, I'm struggling so much with this. And and, of course, there's solutions, and we pray, and we seek the Lord. And, and it, this is a spiritual problem, so we seek the Lord. But a lot of the times, it comes down to the fact that you need to just get out of the basement, stop playing video games, and be busy. You need to devote your life to things that are worth devoting your life to. Now, perhaps you're sitting here this morning, and you're thinking, man, oh, man, I'm glad that I'm through that season of my life, and I'm particularly glad that these young guys here are hearing this. And if that's you, and if that's where your mind is going, this next point is, is just for you. So, so lean in and listen close. Here's the second thing we learn in this story. Temptation comes for us all. Comes for us all. Remember, this is David. David was the arrow shot at the sun. David was the one moving in the right direction. The greatest king that Israel had ever known. David was the one who, God himself said this of David. I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. David, the giant slayer. The psalm writer, the man after God's own heart, found himself staring lustfully at the woman next door. David, the one who was to be the executor of God's justice for God's people, succumbed to his sin and committed one of the greatest injustices that Israel had ever seen. Who would have thought that the brave, pure-hearted David, who wrote Psalm 23 that we recited just earlier, would also be the selfish, perverted king of 2 Samuel 11? And yet it's the same man. Hear me this morning. We are all capable of terrible, tragic, terrifying sin. 
All of us. You ever been let down by a leader you trusted? It's a rotten feeling, isn't it? You ever felt that pit in your stomach when, when somebody that you had, you had put your trust in, someone that you had elevated, put on a pedestal, let you down, and you realize that they're just a sinner just like the rest of us? Who can I trust? It is a horrible, rotten feeling. One, take, take what you felt, multiply it by a hundred, and you come close to how Israel must have felt when this story was exposed. This is David. This is the king we've been waiting for, and he's a rotten sinner just like the rest of us. How deeply disillusioned must they have been when they came to realize that David was just one more of the rest of us, another sinner in a long line of sinners. We need to learn this lesson. We need to be changed by this lesson. Good men and women, good people with with years of faithfulness behind them have fallen. Godly, respectable, admirable people have let their guard down and have made peace with sin and they have destroyed a life of ministry. Just within the last five years, you know, Ravi Zacharias and Bill Hybels and Carl Lentz, and like we could list this off. This is happening all around us. The enemy baits us, and he waits for us to let our guard down. He waits for us to say, I can loosen up a bit. I mean, I've been a Christian for 25 years. I can loosen up a little bit. Right? I'm, a, I'm an elder now. I'm a pastor now. I can loosen up. I'm a grandparent now. Do I really need to let go of this hobby that's pulling my family out of church two times a month? Is that, is that really a priority? I, I'm mature enough. I can handle this. I can do faith on my own if I need to. Do I really need to stop watching this TV show just because it's got these explicit scenes in, in most of the episodes? I mean, I can just, I don't even, I don't even, I close my eyes. I can handle this. I'm mature enough. Do I really need to say no to this relationship, to this hobby, to this bad habit? I think that I could probably, I'm the one who can handle it, I think. Listen, your enemy doesn't care if you've been clean for one year or 20. And he doesn't care if you're in your teens or if you're in your 80s. And he doesn't care if you're a new believer or if you're an elder or if you're a pastor or if you're King David. When you let your guard down, he is ready. Temptation comes for all of us. One detail that sometimes we skim past in this story is the fact that David hadn't cultivated a habit of of going up on his rooftop and looking at women. He hadn't. You know, wouldn't it be easier if, if we could point back and say, well, look at what he'd done. You know, here, he'd just been planting the seeds. He's been... No, up to this point, David had been serving faithfully. David was a commendable man, and yet in an instant, in a day, he doesn't go to war, he makes a decision, he gets bored, he wanders, he sees, and he decides in a moment to take, and everything changes. In an instant. We need to see that. We need to be on guard for that. Temptation comes for all of us. Let's get back into the text now. Let's read from verses 3 to 4. It says, And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of, of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? That should be the end of the story. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she'd been purifying herself from her uncleanness. And then she returned to her house. Here we learn that sin longs for the forbidden fruit. And I'm borrowing language from Genesis 3 uh, intentionally here because you can see the parallel between this and Genesis 3 where sin comes into the picture. Genesis 3, and you know this, Adam and Eve are, you might not know this, I don't want to assume, Adam and Eve are in the garden. 
And God is, is he's dwelling with them. He's given them all that they could possibly want, all they could possibly need. They can eat fruit from any tree in the garden. But God says, just not this one. Not this one tree. It's off limits. And the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. In the same way, here's David. And he is the king. And he can have any woman in the kingdom that he wants. Any single woman in the kingdom would be happy to be with King David, the valiant warrior king. A relationship with David changes the fortunes of their family. A relationship with David would be indescribable. Any woman would have been happy to be in that position. Except he finds this one woman. And even the king can't have her. She's married. She's taken. She's off limits. This is forbidden. But just like Adam and Eve in the garden, David saw and he wanted and he took. There's something about forbidden fruit that seizes upon our hearts. Something about the thrill of doing what we know we should not do. Uh, Maybe this is a silly story, but um, Augustine, or Augustine, depending on how you want to say his name. I'm going to say Augustine. Uh, St. Augustine has this story in his book, Confessions. And it's a story about when he was younger, and there was a peach tree. His neighbor had a peach tree, and he was out with his friends. And one day his friends said, let's go, let's break into the neighbor's yard. And let's just steal the peaches. And he thought, let's do it. And they went and they started stealing the peaches. And then he took a bite and he thought, I don't even like peaches. I don't even like And they, so they're just kind of throwing around, just wasting it. Just wasting it. And his reflection as an old man looking back on that moment is he's saying, what compelled me to do that? I don't like peaches. What compelled me to do it was the fact that somebody said I couldn't. And that's sin. There's something inside of us that hates to be told no. Something inside of us that hates that anyone would ever impose over our will and say, you can go this far and no further. And the devil whispers in our ear, just like he did to Adam and Eve, did God really say? Did he really say? Does God's word really forbid? Is this really wisdom? And we believe the lie. And we convince ourselves that perhaps God is, in fact, withholding from us. We convince ourselves that perhaps happiness is actually on the other side. Perhaps joy is on the other side. Perhaps God doesn't want what's best for me. And perhaps I should take what's best for me. And so seeing, we want, and wanting, we take. And that is sin. It's the pattern. We see it in Genesis 3. We see it here in this story. We see it in our lives. So David called for Uriah's wife. And Bathsheba couldn't say no. I mean, hear that this morning. The king calls for her. They come to take her. She can't say no. What we see here is is a form of rape. It's a tragedy. God's king. The man entrusted to lead God's people. Then having tasted of the forbidden fruit, no doubt feeling ashamed for what he had done, David just sent her back home. The thrill of the disobedience subsided, as it always does. The reality of the sin set in, as it always does. And David, like every sinner before and after him, was left asking the question, was this really worth it? And it wasn't. And it never is. It never is. See, the boundaries that God set in place for us are for our good, because he loves us and he is wise and he knows what is right. The forbidden fruit makes promises that it cannot deliver on, and it always leaves us wallowing in shame. It always comes with consequences that we never anticipated. Always. 
And that's what we find as we jump back into this story. Let's pick back up at verse 5. We're going to read all the way to the end of verse 13. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. How generous. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and uh, tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him. And he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Here we learn the tragic truth that one sin leads to another. And I want you to hear that this morning if you don't hear anything else. One sin always leads to another. In this story, as is the case, David's shame kicked in. He immediately sought a way to hide what he had done. That feeling of shame, that overwhelming urge to hide, is one of the worst feelings that you could ever feel. And, and we've all felt it at one time or another. When you know that you've done something wrong, and you just all you want to do is just conceal it, make it go away. Maybe there's some way that I can just hide this so that nobody else in the entire world sees that I am capable of this thing. And we hide. And you know why that feeling is so terrible? Because God didn't make us to hide. He didn't make us to hide. We look back at the garden before sin came into the picture, and we see Adam and Eve, and they're walking with each other, and they're walking with God, and they are fully known, and they're not ashamed. They have no secrets. They don't need secrets. There's complete and total intimacy. But then sin comes into the picture. And do you know what sin does? It ruins intimacy. It destroys all the foundations for trust. And it turns us into hiders. So David goes to great lengths to hide his sin. First, he puts in plan A. Plan A is relatively harmless. He says to himself, I'll just call Uriah back from the battlefield. I'll talk to him, I'll, you know, I'll make it seem like I needed an update from the field. And then I'll send him home, and he'll be with his wife, and he'll have no way of knowing that the baby is actually mine. Nobody needs to say anything. Problem solved. So he calls Uriah, and, and you can picture the scene. David's just casually looking him in the eyes and talking to Uriah. How, how's it going? How's, how's the battle? How's Joab? Everything's good? And he sends him home. He sends him home with a present. The text includes that. Oh, by the way, here, take this gift with you. But Uriah refuses to go home. He was a noble man. And you listen to what he says. He refuses to indulge in the comforts of home while his brothers are on the battle. He says, what kind of man could do that? Indulge in my own comforts, King David? When our brothers are out on the battlefield, the ark of the Lord is on the battlefield? No, no, no. No, no, no. Until the battle's done, I'm in, I'm in battle mode. I'm not going to go home. 
So David, thrown off, moves to plan B. He keeps Uriah for another night, only this time he decides what I'm going to do is I'm going to feed him. And the text says, I'm going to make him drunk. I'm just going to give him drinks, keep the drinks coming, until eventually he loses his reason, and suddenly Uriah, noble Uriah won't be so noble. He'll go home. Problem solved. And sometimes, because the third step of this plan is so horrible, we jump right past the second step. But this is really tragic, what we see in this scene. Matthew Henry captures it well. He says, God will put a cup of trembling into the hands of those who put into the hands of others the cup of drunkenness. Robbing a man of his reason is worse than robbing him of his money. And drawing him into sin is worse than drawing him into any trouble whatsoever. But here in this scene, we see David, the man after God's own heart, force feed and drinks to Uriah, making him drunk, making him break God's commandments in hopes that Uriah will go home and conceal David's sin. Unfortunately for David, even inebriated, Uriah displayed more dignity and restraint than his king. Now, Here's an important lesson for us this morning. Until confession and repentance happens, sin multiplies. It's like a virus in this respect. There's a lot of young people in this room. I just want to make sure you hear that. Sin always and only multiplies. It's in its very nature to multiply, to infect others. It is, it is a virus in this way. And so... In this way, you can picture hell, and we're talking about hell the week before Christmas. I realize that. You can picture hell almost like a, a forced quarantine. Jesus is offered to bear our sin for us. You realize that. Jesus came, and he lived with us. That's what we're celebrating. He lived with us, and he said, I will bear the curse of sin. Yes, you have done some horrible things. Yes, there is a virus in you that is spreading, that is ruining the world, that is hurting people all around you. Yes, that is dishonoring God. I'll bear it for you. Confess your sins. God is faithful and just. He'll forgive us of our sins. He'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But where does it go? He washes it off of us, and he picks it up, and he puts it on Jesus Christ, and it is paid for. Jesus says, I'll bear it all. I'll bear your adultery, I'll bear your murder, I'll bear your lies, I'll bear all the things that you're trying to hide from the world, confess it, bring it into the light, I'll take it, it's gone. But here's the thing, some people don't want that. Because some people want their sin. They like the virus. They enjoy it. They enjoy the thrill. Even though it's constantly spreading and hurting everyone in their orbit, they want to hold on to it. And you can do that. You can choose to keep this virus. You can choose to celebrate this virus, spread this virus, flaunt this virus. But you need to know that one day, our holy and loving God is going to take you and everyone else who's chosen to make peace with this thing that is ruining the world, and he's going to lock it up in the pit of hell forever, for a forever quarantine, so that the world can flourish in his holiness as it was intended to. That's what the Bible says. Because one sin always leads to another. Now, desperate to hide his sin, David initiated his final plan. We find that beginning in verse 14. Look there with me now. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Put Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew that there were valiant men. 
And the men of the city came out and they fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. We'll stop there. And in this final scene, we learn that sin hurts everyone. So just zoom in on the scene. Here's Uriah, a noble man who loved his king. He was loyal to David. Loyal to the point that he was willing to throw himself into the line of fire if that was the king's command. Here's Uriah, a, a noble man, and he's struck down, forced to go too close to the city walls. He's struck down by an arrow. But it's not just Uriah, because David can't just simply send Uriah. That'd be suspicious. So he has to send all of Uriah's companions. He sends this whole battalion too close to the wall, and many of them die. Many men with wives, with children, presumably, with parents. Many families, generations, forever altered so that David could hide his sin. And one must wonder how this turn of events impacted Joab. He's the commander of these men. He's responsible for these men. Uriah loved Joab. If you remember back when Uriah gave the reason why he wouldn't go home, he said, well, I can't go home because Judah's out there, the, the army's out there, the Ark of the Covenant's out there. But then he names him. Joab, my, my beloved commander, he's still out there on the battlefield. I can't do this. And then Uriah comes home and he gives Joab this letter and Joab opens it up and it says, you're going to send Uriah and his battalion right to the front and you're going to pull everybody else back. And Joab has to follow through in obedience to the king. David, David turns this commander into a murderer who betrays the trust of the soldiers that he'd faithfully led into many battles. And then you've got Bathsheba, of course, and we've talked about the horror of what she endured, but now not only is she robbed of her dignity, but she's robbed of her husband. The baby that is conceived as a result of this sin goes on and dies. And the nation is betrayed. And all of this, all of these people, all of these families, these generations impacted by this sin, it all started with a little boredom. A little boredom led to a little glance from the rooftop. A little rush of excitement. A little entitlement. Then a little compromise. Then a little secret little justification, then a little visit, a little alcohol, depends a little letter. And then innumerable families are ruined and lives are lost and people are hurt and trust is broken and damage is forever done. And Matthew Henry warns, and we'd be wise to listen, the beginnings of sin are therefore to be dreaded for who knows where they will end. And we could have a, a powerful testimony time, I would imagine, if we just paused and said, why don't you just stand up and share a time when that little sin escalated to something that you could have never fathomed and a lot of people were ruined in its wake. I could tell you more stories than I'd care, to, I'd care to elaborate on. It's the truth. Who knows where they will end? Your little personal sin is not nearly as little or as personal as you assume. And you don't know what the little ones are seeing. And you don't know how it's going to affect the people around you. If we, could, if we could take, just one, hone in on one sin in your life, if we could just take that, and if we had the ability to see the impact that it will have for generations, the way that it will spread, multiply, pass on to those who look to us, impact the people around us, if we could see it, we would all be horrified. The things that we have seeded into this world. Sin is no little thing, and it is no personal thing. Sin spreads Sin infects, and sin hurts everyone. Our passage concludes, verse 26 to 27. It says, When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. 
And when the morning was over, David sent and he brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Why? Why did it displease the Lord? See, our, our knee-jerk, our, our sinful reaction is we say, well, this, our sin displeases the Lord because God's trying to rob us of happiness. God's trying to put his, his rigid confines around our sexuality because that's what he does. Right? God, God sees David pursuing a path that's going to lead him to joy, and God wants to shut that down because God's controlling, and God wants us to do things his way. Why did this thing displease the Lord? Because God knows what is best. Because God knows that this sin that we indulge in leads to absolute ruin for everyone involved. It displeases the Lord. Everything that's wrong with the world is because of sin, yet we all keep perpetuating it. I do, you do, even King David does. And that is the story of 2 Samuel 11, the story of Uriah's wife. It's a story about the depth and depravity of sin, a story that properly understood should leave us all feeling absolutely and utterly hopeless. Merry Christmas. This is the story. And you're like, well, pastor, shame on you for bringing this up. Listen, this is the story that Matthew's included in this footnote. Why did he include this? He, did, he didn't need to mention Bathsheba at all. Because David, David's son was Solomon, Solomon's son. He could keep moving on through the list. He didn't need to mention Bathsheba at all. He certainly didn't need to mention, you know, to cut out her name and say the wife of Uriah. So you can say, well, why are we talking about this? Because God's word compels us to talk about this. Right there in the Christmas story, our eyes are drawn to this. And so the question we want to ask as we conclude is, why is this curious footnote in the Christmas story? So we've got to remember where we started this morning. This gospel was written for who? A primarily Jewish audience. It was written for a people who were desperately longing for another David. So do you see what Matthew's done here? Right at the beginning of the gospel story? See, one of the reasons why Jesus was rejected by his own people was because he didn't fit the mold of their expectations. You remember all the times they wanted to make him a political leader? All the times they crowded around him and they were going to seize him so as to make him king so that they could use their will and their force and impose God's rule on the nation and Jesus slipped right through the crowd. All the times when they were mad because they wanted Jesus to take the place of Caesar and, G and Jesus wasn't having any of it. Because that's not why he came. So many of them rejected him. They were frustrated with Jesus because they wanted him to be, they expected him to be another David. So Matthew intentionally begins his gospel with a reminder that while Jesus is a true descendant in the line of David, while D Jesus is the Messiah we've been waiting for, he is not simply another iteration of the previous king. And he positions us to remember that this is a very good thing. We don't need another David. King David could not deliver his people from their deepest, deepest problem. King David could not deliver himself from the deepest problem. King David perpetuated the deepest problem. We don't need a king to deliver us from the Romans. We don't need a king to deliver us from poverty. We don't need a king to deliver us from COVID. We don't need a king to deliver us from the rapidly declining culture. We don't need another David. We need someone who will address our deepest problem. Someone who, with the power to come and once and for all, set us free from the curse of sin. And we need that salvation to stretch beyond the confines of Israel to reach the entire world. That is what Matthew intends for us to see in this curious footnote.
He's preparing us to recognize that Jesus is the king who will save us from our sins. That is why he came. And until you're prepared to look for that, you won't recognize him. It'll look like foolishness. The gospel looks like foolishness to anyone who hasn't had their eyes open to see the problem. He came to save us from our sins. That's what he came for. That's what he has accomplished. And just so you know, we're not out on a limb this morning. If you scroll a few verses past this genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's gospel, we find Joseph's encounter with an angel. And the angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from what? From their sins. That's what Jesus came to do. And can I tell you something wonderful this morning? That's what he did. That's what he did. He lived for us. He condescended down to us. Condescension is a funny word. I, I, um, you know, when we grow up in the church, we sometimes Christianize these words. And uh, one time, Matt Scarlett's not here. He has a cold, so he's at home. Hi, Matt. Uh, he, he applied for a job, um, Christian Horizons, I think. He was going to work with some vulnerable people. And he had asked me to write uh, a referral. And so in the referral, I'm writing, and I like writing referrals because I really love my friends and all of you. And so I'm writing this referral about how awesome Matt is. And that wasn't hard. He's very awesome. And, and one of the things that I love so much about Matt that I worded so clumsily is I just said, he has this tremendous ability to condescend. And I carried on. Because that... I was like, what a beautiful thing to say, and it's true. So my referral actually halted the process. <laughs> and I had to, they had to follow up. Um, what do you mean? <laughs> he's, he's condescending? And uh, I realized, growing up in the church, I see that word a little differently than the culture. So let's clarify. Jesus came to us. He condescended. He met us in our weakness, in our frailty. He came right down, and he entered in. And that's a glorious thing. He lived with us, suffered with us, spoke with us, laughed with us, cried with us, stood at the tomb of Lazarus, felt loss with us. And then he died for us. And in doing so, he bore all of our sin. Can you imagine? All, All of your sin, all of my sin. There are some sins in here that I can't confess to you. Sins from my past, things that I've dealt with, and I've dealt with the people involved from long ago, but I'm not going to hash that out in front of you because you couldn't look at me the same if you knew my deepest, darkest things. P.S., that's true for every single one of us. But Jesus saw all of it, and he came down and he said, I've got a plan for you. I love you. Watch what I will do with that deep, dark, despicable sin. And he bore it in his flesh on the cross. All of it. The adultery, the rebellion, the lust, the sin, the, the wickedness, the murder, The betrayal, the rape, bore it for us. Bore it for us on the cross. Drank to the the very last dregs, the, the wrath of God against our sin. And he declared, it is finished. It is finished. Hallelujah. It is done. It is accomplished. Our Savior King has come. The king that we need has come. He's provided an answer for all of the problems that plague our world. In his first coming, he came and he showed us that victory was at hand. And he offered to us a way of salvation. He said to us, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He said to us, come, take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. 
He said, repent, believe the gospel. These are the invitations from Jesus' mouth to us. He came and he said, there is an answer. And if you would just humble yourself and lay hold, there is salvation for sinners. And he's coming again. And when he comes again, he will finally, once and for all, do away with sin and death forever. He will lock it up in a forever quarantine. And he will throw away the key. And all things will finally be as they should be. And that is a very good thing. Can I tell you something? I am so sick and tired of sin. Anybody else feeling that? I am so tired of it. I am so sick and tired of watching sin ruin marriages. I'm so sick and tired of watching the enemy lure brothers and sisters that I love off of the path that leads to life with forbidden fruit, making promises that he'll never keep and leaving ruin and destruction in the wake. I'm sick and tired of seeing that own sin spring up in my own heart again and again. I'm sick and tired of living in a world where we collectively ignore the real problem and highlight all of these other things that aren't the real problem, and then we fight over them, and we fight about politics, and we fight about our policies, and we fight about anything and everything except the one thing that's actually the problem that divides us all. And I'm just so tired of it. I'm weary of it. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Do you feel that? If you don't see the brokenness of this world, if you don't see the problem of sin, then you'll never understand the indescribable glory of this baby in a manger. God is working in the midst of the brokenness. He entered in. He condescended down. He took it on. He made a way. And when you see that, those familiar songs that we sing take on a a truer, a deeper meaning. Marianne, I didn't prepare you for this, but are you able to go back to, um, what's the name of that song? Well, Come and Come Emmanuel, that third verse. This is a different song, actually. This, I'm going to throw, see, I'm throwing you off. This is a different song. The third verse that we sang today. Just, just think about this. Verse three. It says, O come thou rod of Jesse free. Thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save. And give us victory o'er the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. Shall come to thee, O Israel. That doesn't make any sense unless you felt the tyranny, unless you've seen it ravaged through families, in your own family, in your own heart. But once you see it, once you see the darkness that is there, once you feel the hopelessness and the despair that is there, suddenly your eyes are prepared to see the light that breaks through the darkness. And the light has broken through the darkness, friends. The king has come. The king has come. The savior of the world has come. There's hope. (laughs) See it with the eyes of faith. There's a God who loves us, who entered into our captivity so as to make us free. There is an answer to this overwhelming brokenness that exists inside of us and all around us. A light that breaks through. A voice that cuts through. For those who have ears to hear, let them hear the voice that declares, it is is finished. It's finished. 
Merry Christmas. Let me pray for us. A thrill of hope. A weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks this new and glorious morn. O night divine, when Christ was born. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge before you that there is something wrong with the world and that something uh, exists and lives within each one of our hearts. Uh, Lord, we see the division, the chaos, the ruin all around us. And we know that we've contributed to it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And uh, Lord, I am the chief of sinners. I feel that. We need help. And you have sent it. Not in an answer book. Not in empty platitudes. You sent your son. You gave of yourself to bear this mess so that we could be free and cleansed and that we could have life and all of the things that we do not deserve. God, I pray that that would never be become something that we dismissively uh, rush past as we run to the bells and whistles of Christmas. Lord, there are some really hurting people here today in some really broken, desperate situations today. Some of them don't even know how desperate their situation is. I thank you that you see and you know and you save. So I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would open eyes and soften hearts. And God, I pray that you'd give hope. Lord, hope to all of us. Even though we see the victory, Lord, it's, it's, it's D-Day, right? We, we've seen that the enemy's been pushed back, but there are still battles to fight. There are still lives that will be lost, but V-Day is coming. And uh, Lord, we want to be found faithful. And Lord, we pray that you'd give us strength. Lord, as we prayed for the lighthouse, uh, Lord, I pray for, for this church. The weariness settles in really quickly, Lord. But you tell us not to grow weary in doing good. So Lord, we want to press forward in faith and hope. Lord, we want to we walk with the joy of the Lord as our strength. We want to we operate and live with one another as if we genuinely believe in the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus as we celebrate that with Advent this morning. God, help us, help us by the power of your Spirit to lay hold. And Lord, I, I want to pray if there's anyone here who has not yet laid hold, God, I pray that you would help them to see the scandal of grace. That after a lifetime of sin, all it takes is, is a humility of heart to say, I have sinned, and I'm sorry, and I trust that Jesus paid for my sin, and I want to walk with him forever. And in an instant, everything changes. <laughs> God, would you change everything right now? And I pray all of these things in Jesus' mighty saving name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?